Welcome to The Legal Lowdown. Today we'll be talking about COVID-19 and its impact on schools. I'm here with education attorney Rita Nerney from Barton Gilman. She has kindly agreed to calling in from her home today to speak with me. There may be some interruptions from pets or others, but I think everybody in a work-from-home situation has a pretty good understanding of that these days. Rita, welcome. Thank you for joining us today and for taking the time. I would say happy to be here, but I don't know if I'm happy exactly, but I'm happy to share this information with our schools and families and students who will likely need this information now or in the near future. Yeah, there seems to be a lot of panic and a lot of questions, and the situation evolves so rapidly that I'm sure it's very hard for people in leadership positions at schools who are dealing with families and children and unusual circumstances to kind of get their hands around all of the issues surrounding this. So how would you like to start? What, what what kinds of things do you think are on school leaders' minds? And if they're not, what kinds of things should they be thinking about right now? So I just want to highlight briefly that your comment that things are evolving rapidly is what we're seeing as well. Some of our guidance to schools, you know, a couple of days ago was very different than what we're talking about now. Um, you know, just a couple of days ago, schools were still open. And now, at least as far as I know, in Rhode Island, Massachusetts, they're dealing with school closures. Rhode Island is in the process of, you know, closing schools for at least a week, if not longer, and talking about distance learning and Massachusetts has closed um, through the beginning of April as of right now. So a lot of the issues that school administrators are seeing are dealing more with access issues for students and their families, given the fact that schools are closed. And for a number of families, this means that the lunches and breakfast that they receive through school, there's a question about whether or not they're going to have the same sort of access to meals for their kids. And another one of the concerns that we're seeing revolves around internet access for students, especially if schools go forward with distance learning and virtual online classroom options in the coming weeks. So uh, it would be great if we could kind of talk about some of those things today and mention some of the resources that we've seen and point to some areas where schools and families can look for more information on those matters. That would be great. Do you want to start with one of the things that I started hearing a lot about when it was just an interesting thing to learn? I don't know that everybody understands that for a lot of families and children, the breakfast and lunch that they receive at school is vital to their day. And that was a a very important consideration when thinking about closing schools. Do you want to talk about the meals component related to schools? Yeah, so we can talk about that. Specifically in Rhode Island, one of the issues that schools have been dealing with this week in particular, and I'm talking about the week of March 16th, 2020, is the fact that Rhode Island schools are treating this week as their April vacation week. So typically for school vacation weeks, students don't get meals um, because schools are closed for vacation. And given that this week was not a vacation week that families were expecting, that was one of the considerations that schools and the Rhode Island Department of Education 
has considered when discussing the possibility that students are going to need meals this week. So through the Rhode Island Department of Education, schools are currently providing what they're calling grab-and-go meals to students and families this week, again, March 16, 2020. And as of right now, the time we're recording this podcast, the Rhode Island Department of Health has a website that is being updated constantly that lists all of the sites throughout the state of Rhode Island where students and their families can go to get meals that would otherwise be served in school. So the way that schools get reimbursement or the federal government for meals that they provide to students and families is through the federal reimbursement program. And school typically has to be open for schools to get reimbursement through that. But the Rhode Island Department of Education has received a waiver so that any student in Rhode Island who's under 18 years old can access meals at any site in the state, which is important in the sense that if a student or a family looks on the Department of Health website currently and sees a site that is convenient for them to go access a meal, to pick up a meal, it doesn't have to be their school or even their city or town. Obviously, that will likely be most convenient, but anyone who's age 18 or under who shows up will get a free meal. They don't need to show a license or any sort of identification. They don't have to show any proof of their residency. The only requirement as of right now that we know of is that the child must be present. So schools are not authorized to give meals to an adult on behalf of a child. So if families are going to pick up the meals, bring your children with you as well. Okay. In terms of the listing, I did want to just point out that that list, we've posted it on our social media accounts. So if in talking about this, somebody is looking for that, it can be found on our social media channels and we'll also place it on our website. As far as um, Massachusetts goes, yeah, the Massachusetts Department of Elementary and Secondary Education on their website has stated that they have gotten approval from the U.S. Department of Agriculture, the USDA, has approved their waiver request to allow schools where at least 50% of students are eligible for free or reduced-priced meals to continue providing those meals, and they will be assured those schools will get the reimbursement from the federal government. Schools in Massachusetts with less than 50% of their students eligible for free or reduced-priced meals, the waiver has not been approved for those schools. However, the Mass Department of Elementary and Secondary Education has said that those schools should still keep track if they are handing out meals while schools are closed, keep track of those meals that they're serving to kids or providing to kids and their families, just in case the federal guidance around that changes, around that reimbursement, which that is possible, that that could change in the coming weeks. And as far as accessing the information about where the sites are in Massachusetts, families can reach out to their local district and they're probably getting notifications as well. But there's no central list in Massachusetts that we know of at this time that could change tomorrow. Okay. Living in a town in Massachusetts, I can can kind of verify, at least in the town that we live in, and I assume others are 
doing a similar thing. We are getting emails about um, grab-and-go lunches and where you can get them within your town and also food bank information. Okay, great. One other thing I just wanted to flag, and I'm sure schools are well aware, but when you are organizing these sites where families can come and, and pick up some meals, make sure that you're making efforts to implement the safety precautions to avoid large crowds, um, whether that's spacing people out, whether that's having them remain in their vehicles, just to make sure that we are not creating another problem of, of passing the virus by having everyone congregate in close quarters to pick up the meals. Oh, that's a very good point. What about in terms of internet access? Um, I'm sure it's a challenge for school administrators and others to think through how to provide equal access to the internet and, uh, you know, access that all kids are able to participate at the same level and have the same exposure. Can you advise as to what is out there now in terms of access and what schools can reasonably offer? Yeah, so some schools might already have a sense of what students do and and do not have for internet access at their homes already. And if they do not, it, this might be a good time to send out surveys to get a sense of the students who will need internet access at their home as soon as possible if a school is considering any sort of online learning in the next couple of weeks, which I know is being discussed throughout Rhode Island and Massachusetts as well. That's as far as internet access goes. And in conjunction with that, schools need to make sure that students also have access to the appropriate technology, whether that's Chromebooks or laptops. And I know, at least in Rhode Island, many schools with students who have needs for those sorts of technology have Chromebooks and, and other devices that they provide to students, at least in school. So if it's not already a policy in place, figuring out a way to be able to send home those Chromebooks with the students for, you know, the duration of this COVID-19 emergency that we're currently dealing with. And then as far as internet access goes, there have actually been some promotions or, or ways that internet providers are jumping in and trying to help out in this crisis as well. And we are aware of at least two uh, promos from Cox Communications and Comcast. I, I believe Cox is at least the first month free of a internet access service. And then after that first month, the service would be $9.95 a month, $9.95 a month. And Cox is also, they've put together a learn from home toolkit for schools, which includes instructions for schools on how to fast track eligible students who do not have internet access to make sure that they have that access in their homes as soon as possible. And with Comcast, I believe that customers who qualify, so qualified low-income households, can receive two free months of internet service. And then after that, it's the same uh, $9.95 a month. Neither of these 
providers were not endorsing them by any means, but, um, and there might be other providers out there that are running promotions or ways to assist families due to the COVID-19 emergency, but these are some starting points at least if schools are trying to connect families or families are looking for where they can even begin to call companies to either get internet access or maybe ramp up the, um, you know, the speed of the internet that they're getting to their house because now they're going to have two kids at home on the computer all day long while, you know, parents could be working from home too. So those are some starting points that we've heard about. Okay. And do you think that families struggling with that, are they going to the school and asking them for more information about that? Should the schools be pe- be prepared with that information? Or is it okay to assume that families can find that information on their own? I think that the, I think that our suggestion that schools, you know, send out surveys or, or, or some other way to figure out what students need internet access is a good starting point for schools. And then at that point, once they identify the families who need the internet to follow up with resources or be prepared to field questions from families and to continue to follow up with families, if there seems to be any indication that the family has, for whatever reason, not gotten the internet access. Another possibility Um, would be to provide individual students with Wi-Fi hotspots that might be more costly to schools. I'm not sure of the cost for, you know, a certain number of Wi-Fi hotspots, but that could be something that schools purchase, pay for a monthly plan, you know, say through Verizon for the next month or so, and then on an individual case-by-case basis, provide them to the students who need them as well. All right, that's great. For families with special education plans and needs. Um, Are there any kind of unique requirements, compliance that schools need to be aware of and thinking through right now? Yes, definitely. So under the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, the IDEA, any eligible student has a right to a free, appropriate public education or a FAPE, and that is even in a time of crisis. So if you are a student and you're receiving educational services under the IDEA, they're, they don't become optional now that schools and the world is dealing with this COVID-19 emergency. Uh, the U.S. Department of Education recently issued guidance on this, um, specifically with providing services to students with disabilities during this outbreak. Some of the guidance relates to some of the issues like I, I mentioned earlier, where maybe we were dealing with this a week ago where one person at the school was diagnosed with COVID-19 or came in contact with someone and so then was quarantined and not able to come into school. And so if that was a student who was receiving any special education services, then there were, you know, there's considerations for that. At this time, it, it seems you know, just a week later, it seems more of a concern for schools that if they're, if the schools aren't going to outright close, but if they are going to physically close their buildings, but still provide either virtual online instruction or independent study to all students, then they also need to be able to provide those 
educational services to students with disabilities. If schools close and provide no educational services at all, um, there's no requirement that they keep up with an IEP for a student with disabilities during the time that the school is closed for all students. However, in those situations, after the school reopens again, students with disabilities might potentially be eligible for compensatory services at that time. So if they were uh, in their IEP um, supposed to be getting, say, an hour of physical therapy each week and a school closes for everyone for two weeks, then maybe when that student comes back, the IEP team determines that that student should receive compensatory physical therapy services for, for two hours in addition to what is typically required. And it seems like schools will be dealing with in the near future with distance learning plans that are being discussed is providing educational services to students with disabilities um, in some other way than they have been providing those services. So that might mean providing online virtual instruction in a way that complies with all of the um, provisions of a student's IEP. It might mean instructional phone calls for a specific student. Um, it could possibly even mean providing related services to a student at the child's home. Given a lot of the COVID-19 guidance that changes every day, whether or not schools will be in a position where they can send staff to a student's home, we're not, we're not sure if that is going to be the, the best guidance or the guidance that schools will be getting from, you know, the governor and the Department of Education. Um, but that is a possibility as well. Okay. Um, the, one of the things to think about uh, in the very near future for schools is if students with disabilities are going to have, you know, uh, an online learning plan for the next couple weeks, month, uh, the, the student's IEP team should convene before that change is made to the student's learning plan. As far as timing with the convening of the IEP team, one of the things that we anticipate being an issue is getting an IEP team together in person, which is typically how they meet. Um, so given the circumstances of school closures, quarantines, Department of Health guidelines, and COVID-19 guidelines that change every single day, sometimes, you know, halfway through the day, we, under um, some federal guidance that was issued in 2017, it seems very likely that if an IEP team were to convene a meeting through a teleconference or other remote means, that that would be sufficient and okay um, under the federal guidance given the, the current emergency. Okay. Um, and so at that IEP team meeting, one of the things that the team can discuss is whether a given student's home would be considered an appropriate placement for the student during the COVID-19 crisis. And then the team can also identify where they see possible compensatory services after the crisis so that the IEP team is aware that at the given time, 
maybe physical therapy services or occupational therapy services, that those are not going to be able to be provided to a student given, you know, restrictions and quarantines and, and all of the other situations uh, due to COVID-19. And they can highlight that that will be a need for the student when school is back in session in the building and it's no longer online only. Okay. And do they, do the IEP teams need to sort of take, I'm guessing that the advice is sort of to take great notes and keep them in the record and to kind of track what did happen and how they've responded? Absolutely. So the IEP team, you know, can go through all of the the different services that the, the child is receiving and the goals. And wherever possible, translate those to either independent study or online learning or, you know, maybe coupled with instructional phone calls from, you know, the relevant educators for that student and then identify the areas that are are just not going to be able to be provided due to the emergency if, you know, the student's home is the appropriate placement for that student to be educated for the duration of the emergency. And then that way the student is still re- receiving educational services in the same way that other students are receiving educational services while the school building is closed. And then it will be clear where the student may need to receive compensatory services once school is back in session in the future. Okay. You had mentioned earlier uh, changes to um, the meetings laws for school boards and committees. Um, the open meetings law has had some adjustments temporarily for the COVID-19 um, crisis. Can you explain what schools are permitted and are not permitted to do in light of those temporary changes? Yes. So on March 12th in Massachusetts, Governor Baker issued an executive order which suspended portions of the open meetings law during this current emergency, specifically so that school boards, well, any public boards, but in this instance, school boards and any subcommittee of the school boards now have a little bit more flexibility as far as complying with the open meetings law. So, School boards are now in Massachusetts permitted to convene a meeting, a public meeting in a location that is not technically open and physically accessible to the public, as long as the public can still access the discussions of that meeting in a free manner, so they don't have to pay to participate. So an example would be if a school board decided to hold a meeting using, you know, on a conference call that conference call number would have to be able to support, you know, enough members of the public if they wanted to join. And then that conference call number would have to be provided to the public. So, you know, noticed on an agenda in advance of the meeting. Okay. Best practice for a school board is to provide conference call and information or video conferencing for a meeting. I believe that Zoom is offering um, free access to K through 12 schools. I think through, I don't know if it's a limit, like a one month offer right now, but it's related to COVID-19 emergency. So providing that to schools right now, so that could be an option that school boards 
might want to use um, so that the public can participate as well in those meetings. As far as the requirement for a quorum, a quorum is still required for the meeting, but again, the members don't need to physically be in the same location. They just need to either call in or, or video conference into the meeting. Okay, and are, are the rules, I know the enforcement dates or enactment dates are different from Massachusetts and Rhode Island. It was the it was March 12th for Massachusetts and March 16th for Rhode Island. But are the rules essentially the same between the two states? Yes, they're they're pretty similar. Rhode Island executive order from the governor relaxed the Open Meetings Act requirement in a similar manner, permitting now either telephone conference call or video conferencing, as long as the school board ensures that the public can access the meeting through adequate alternative means, which, again, you cannot require the public to have to pay to access that. Okay. So, and that, that's what they mean by adequate. It's anybody can really join. Exactly. Without a hurdle. Exactly. And the Rhode Island executive order also relaxed some of the the timelines and the Access to Public Records Act. So if somebody makes a request for public records to a public entity, a school board, a school, the executive order in Rhode Island extends the timeline for the school to have to respond to that request, and it gives an additional 20 business days on top of the 20 business day extension that's already in the statute. The only caveat is that the school needs to reply to the requester and say, we're going to respond to you per the extension executive order, and it's related to the COVID-19 emergency. So the school is required to cite COVID-19 emergency as a reason for extending the timeline to respond to someone who requests public records. But that also is a good measure that the governor has put in place to kind of help public entities, but in this instance, schools kind of dealing with everything that's coming up right now, giving them a little bit of time to push off things that might contribute to time and attention of staff. So if, you know, there's reduced staff and and things like that, some things can be pushed off and this is one of them, which is helpful. Rita, thank you so much for joining us today. I appreciate your time and all of this information for schools. I did want to reiterate that Rita and the education team at Barton Gilman, as as well as our employment team, have been putting out COVID-19 legal updates for our schools and business clients. Those can be found on our website at www.bglaw.com. They can also be found on all of our social media accounts. We are on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram. Just search Barton Gilman and you'll find us and those updates will be provided there. Um, And we are also making an effort on our social media channels to recirculate information that we think will be relevant for our communities. Um, Things like the list of Rhode Island 
school lunch and breakfast location distribution spots. So feel free to visit any of those places at any time to find more information. Also, if you would like to reach out to Rita or to anybody at Barton Gilman for legal advice or information, you can contact us through our website or you can reach us at 888-273-9903. Rita, thanks again and be healthy. Thanks so much. You as well, Diana. The content provided in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to constitute legal advice or to form an attorney-client relationship. If you would like to seek legal advice from a Barton Gilman attorney, please visit us at www.bglaw.com or call 888-273-9903 for more information. Barton Gilman serves clients throughout the Northeast with offices in Boston, Providence, and New York offering legal services in a wide variety of matters, including medical and other professional liability defense, premises liability and business litigation, education law, employment, family law, insurance coverage, trust and estates, criminal defense, corporate formation, and intellectual property. The firm and its attorneys have received numerous awards and accolades, including best lawyers, best law firms, best places to work Rhode Island, Outstanding Philanthropic Business, the Common Good Award, and Super Lawyers. For more information about Barton Gilman, please visit our website at www.bglaw.com or call us toll-free at 888-273-9903.